This episode is brought to you by Breathe Easy Productions. Dream, plan, do. Welcome to the What Do Women Know? What do women know? What do women know? Podcast. I'm Jessica O'Keefe. The goal here is to interview women, to hear their expertise and how they operate in the world. One out of three podcasts are women's voices. Let's get more women's voices out there sharing their experiences. Today, I'm interviewing Marie Kamek Isaac. She is the Division Manager of Independent Capital Management's Newport Beach, California office. Marie has worked as a financial advisor and wealth manager since 2003. She was promoted to her firm's senior management team a year and a half after joining the firm. And through her dedication to excellence, Marie has led her team and office to the number one ranking in the company multiple times. She is an executive officer at the firm and currently serves on the board of directors. She's a joy to know and an honor to have as a friend. It is with this in mind that I introduce Marie Kamek Isaac, financial wizard, to our listeners. So hi, Marie. Hi, Jessica. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So in college, when we lived together, I remember you sitting in the recliner and talking about class. And in college, I don't really remember thinking about before I went into uh, women's studies. I didn't really think about women being separated. And I was thinking to myself, I don't recall hearing you ever talk about men versus women in your economics class. And that had to have been a highly male dominated major. Okay. Well, first of all, I rarely went to class. So (laughs) maybe (laughs) you didn't hear me talking about it because I wasn't in class. (laughs) I mean, Honestly, though, all joking aside, like I, I would go the first day, I'd get the syllabus. Okay, when's the midterm? When's the final? And I just kind of taught myself. I, <laughs> I wasn't a go to class person that much. Not for my econ classes because they're very mathematical. I mean, for me, again, I, I've just been very fortunate to have a brain that allows me to read it and learn it and self-teach you know like some people need to go to class and hear it from the instructor and i i'm the type of person that that's not always the case now i've been to other classes where absolutely i would go to class like when i took some african-american studies classes or some social classes or you know where you wanted to hear the professor and their take and their perspective and be part of the discussion what i would say is that my industry in you know my professional experience is absolutely a male dominated industry. I mean, here we are in 2020 and I I'll misquote it, but when you look at the average statistic of a demographic of a financial advisor, it's like the average age is over 60 and it's a white male in these 20 years or 18 years, excuse me, you've seen more and more women enter the industry and do very well because so much of our, the success in our industry of personal financial planning is your ability to connect with people and communicate and yes, numbers, but it's the connection first in the relationships. But so I, I, I'm happy to see that it's moved. I'm happy that I found a great company right out of college to begin my career. And I'm still with that same company where we have diversity you know, a third of our board members on our board are women, you know, um, half of our branch offices are run by female branch managers. So, and not because of the statistics that we should, it's just because those are the people who earn those positions, you know, out of skill and achievement. So in that sense, I've been fortunate to find a company with a great culture 
now, albeit it hasn't been absent from obvious reminders that it's a male dominated industry and being surrounded by men. I even now it still happens, but more so in the beginning of my career when I'd be at this conference and I remember I talked about being analytical and always having questions. Well, it's kind of become a running joke amongst my peers. When they go, any questions, they all look at me, (laughs) your questions, right? And I do, I always have questions, not like silly questions for the sake of asking questions, but I, you know, I have questions, like you left out details. I need to know the details. So um, there'd be these times where I'd raise my hand and ask my questions in this big group, 1500, sometimes thousands, right? In these big conferences. And I'd ask a question. And as I'm asking a question, which is clearly an intelligent question, you would see the heads turn because they're hearing a female voice. They look like, who could that be? And asking such a good question. And I, and it was noticeable. I mean, I, I could feel the eyes on me. And, you know, when you look in a mirror or when people look at you and judge you on your appearance, and then you open your mouth and start talking, I mean, that was clearly what was happening, where they might have assumed. And oftentimes I was asked if I was the administrative assistant for my colleague, the male counterpart. And I would say, no, I'm actually the branch manager. And it was just like, oh, there's that shock and awe surprise factor. It still happens now more at our insurance industry (laughs) events, but a little less on the investment side of my business. I think diversity has improved there. And I think some of these things cross over into racial conversations that a lot of America's having today. We'll have a law say, or there's this equal opportunity or there's protections. and, And supposedly those are in place for women as well, but there's no law that can prevent the looks you get when you enter a room, you know, when you know it, you just know it in your gut. And so this idea of we're paid less than the male counterpart, hey, the proof's in the numbers, it's true. You can question why that is, and people will say there's policies in place, so it's not that, it must be capability, it must be this, it must be that. But if you're, when you are a woman in a professional environment and you walk into the room and you feel the looks, you feel the glances, you see yourself get sized up, you see yourself mistaken as the administrative professional when you're probably one of the smarter, if not smartest people in the room and only getting those looks of surprise and respect once you ask a question. And that's just experience telling me that there's absolutely a gender divide. Wow. And so yes, it's a male dominated industry. And even if it wasn't, I, I, I think that gender plays a role in many professions and in many industries, maybe even if they're not male dominated, I don't know. Wow. And it makes me think because, you know, I'm a white woman and I have a certain economics, social economic background. And I think being a woman has helped me see this perspective of that there truly are classes and categories and the way you're viewed by others, there's absolutely an impact professionally or economically, just because I'm a woman. Now, I start to think and have my brain go beyond myself and say, okay, well, what if I'm a woman, but of color or of a different economic background? So if that's the experience I'm having where I've had a great education, I have a college degree, I worked my behind off. I'm successful. Yet there were questions as to how did I get my success? Did I really earn it? Or what was I doing? 
And that's just for me being a woman without some of these other um, sectionalities section. Exactly. And, and, and so that does make me look beyond myself and, and contemplate and wonder, you know, what is that experience like for others who aren't white, you know, or aren't of the economic opportunity that I've had or didn't have access to an education like I did. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's an interesting uh, train of thought. Yeah. A little troubling and worrisome, quite frankly. Yeah. I had this conversation with my husband who's African-American and it was when we were uh, earlier on in our relationship, when we were talking, sexism is as much a part of our country as racism is. If you're a woman, right. And a woman of color, especially what that life experience must be like and, and the struggles and stereotypes and, and what it involves. Yeah. And, and, and those are things you're working to fix. Can we fix them in our lifetime is the question, I suppose. You've talked about how you basically sidestep sexism in your college major by self-teaching. How have you navigated sexism in the financial world? When I was new in the industry and it was at an event for our firm, one of the male managers at our firm, it was during a break and he was goofing off with my, my colleague and he made a motion of, cause he was sitting in my seat. He came to sit in my seat to, to, to jest with the gentleman that was sitting next to. And I was like, oh, you're in my seat. And he did one of these like, oh, why don't you sit on my lap? Ooh. Yeah, it was rough. Now, what's interesting is, you know, I have a really thick skin. I'm a roll with the punches type. Like I was a bartender at a blue collar bar, right? And I could quick fire back and hold my own, which is all fine and dandy. I wasn't really offended by it okay like I wasn't like oh my gosh he said that I kind of laughed it off and it wasn't that big of a deal to me but context is everything and life and perspective is everything and it was actually my male counterpart said something to the higher ups I didn't he did because he was like that was inappropriate and here I am at that time it was acceptable to me you know I thought it was funny I rolled with the punches but it wasn't, it's not acceptable. It was totally inappropriate and unprofessional. And he would have never said that to a male counterpart, but to see how as a woman, I don't know if it's through life experience or it happening all the time. I was in that moment thinking, ah, no big deal, but it is a big deal. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's a big deal. You should yeah, say that. Hey, I don't think somebody would do that. Well, funny. You should say that because <laughs> actually in a more recent history of events, I would say in the last, I guess the last two to three years. And I was on a, a panel of executives at our firm. There were, I don't know, maybe four of us. I think there was a CEO, two of the senior partners and myself. And we were interviewing people for a high-end executive position at our firm. And I was the only woman on the panel, but clearly one of the decision makers. And one of the candidates at the end of the interview shook everyone's hand and he asked me for a hug. Ooh. Yeah. You know, and now going back to what you said, my family were Italian, like I'm a hugger, honestly. Like I hug, I don't, I don't care. I hug. <laughs> and I, if anything, I'm like, oh, I hope that didn't make that person uncomfortable. <laughs> and so my instinct kicked in to, I did a side hug, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Cause I'm like, ah. I'm going to hug you. 
but I did it, you know, and I thought about it after and I was mad at myself because I side hugged this guy. And again, it's how I was brought up and we're comfortable with hugging, but it was so inappropriate. Like I'm the person deciding if you're going to have this position and you ask me for a hug, you didn't ask any of these guys for a hug. And you have these moments where it's, ah, shoulda, woulda, coulda. And if I could go back and I should have said something or I should have made him feel as uncomfortable as you made me. And I felt like it was an opportunity missed, right? Now I will tell you, he didn't get the position. And in my feedback, I was like, he's an absolute no. He asked me for a hug. No, sorry, Bob. He's not going to represent our firm. Who knows what else he would do? Yeah. He he definitely wasn't hired. (laughs) But I, I was mad at myself for, for, side hugging him, you know, it wasn't a full on, but still I did it, you know, and I, I, it kind of made me mad that I did. And mm-hmm. I think that's just examples of the everyday things that happen to women in a professional environment. Yeah. Do you struggle with perfectionism and thinking all this stuff through? I've always been that person, John Wooden, right? The oh, best. Yeah all time ever right like in all his things of his pyramid of success and all that but the his thing is like when you, how do you define success I'm not going to try to quote it exactly right because I'm going to butcher it but at the end of the day success is basically being the best version of yourself right doing everything in your power to the best of your ability re- kind of regardless of outcome is success because you know that you did everything that you could do and I think that's so important. It's about, you have to focus on the things you can control, not on the things you cannot control. And that's where, you know, perfectionism can be a slippery slope because if, if the way you're defining perfection involves factors that you cannot control, you'll never attain it. And, and that, that would be bad, right? (laughs) That would be really bad. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. I remember you teaching me and others in high school about chemistry, calculus, physics. How does your ability to teach others come into play in your work today in finance? I think being able to explain it to someone else and in a way that they understand, because everyone has a different learning and communication style, it just makes you have to really understand whatever that topic is. Yeah. I can't just teach it to someone the way I learned it. You know, I have to be able to teach it in a way that they can learn it. I, I mean, that's true now for me, because I'm as a manager, I train other financial advisors. I mean, when I work with my clients, the way I choose to work with my clients is most, but most of my clients don't want to know all the ins and outs, but I want to teach them a little bit. They'll probably forget it. But at that moment, when I'm explaining it, I want to make sure they understand and are making an informed decisions. And it, I think it just has made me more proficient in, in my own profession. Those skills have carried me through my profession. What I do has made me successful because it's one thing if you just, you have to know it in your isolated head, <laughs> but when you have to teach and explain it to others, it just means that you know it even better. Yeah. It seems like you truly approach clients like they are your family. You do, you treat them like your family. How does family and your family's life story impact your work in finance? If I just make it the tale of two grandparents, 
my dad's parents, therefore my grandparents on my dad's side were always good savers. You know, they lived long time. They didn't run out of money. My grandma was actually one who literally used an envelope. So that bucket system of having money designated for different purposes and, and whatnot and diversifying, et cetera. You know, she would do that where she would say my she would create, that's how she would budget. So she'd put money in this envelope and tell my grandpa, you know, I think it was something like getting gas for the cars. <laughs> I forget what it was. We had this conversation. She's like, that's the envelope for gas for the car. So it's like, if there's no money in that envelope, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> well, that's a example. And I don't know why she chose to do it for gas for the car, but whatever, <laughs> you know, but that idea of literally an envelope. So they prepared, right. And they saved and they were really fiscally responsible. And then we have on my mom's side, my, my grandfather there, you know, wasn't as prepared financially. And later in life, they had a long-term care event where my grandma, you know, she fell, she hit her head, she had a stroke and downturn, needed full-time care. And, you know, they just were not prepared for that financially. And they ended up having to sell their house and, you know, they're living on social security and have a a bunch of assets. So it's just these two totally different stories. So I think stories are important in that sense, because it's seeing how the way we think of money, um, how we were taught about money influences what we do with our own money, or maybe those values we have going into it. Because as much as I'd like to say it's numbers and cents, and here's a spreadsheet, this is what you should do. There's been whole studies on this. It's behavioral, right? Finance is behavioral. It's psychological. The, the way you feel about money impacts the decisions you make with your money. I I, re, I took a finance a, a class re, just recently, and she was describing emotional choices versus rational choices. If you decide to make an emotional choice, it's bound in the rational choice. So you've already yeah. prepared yourself that then there will be an event where there's an emotional choice, but you can at least say, I have planned for this emotional choice that so much of our emotion, we think it's out of our control. Yes. Not smart. That's good advice. I might use that. <laughs> I'm going to steal that. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, I think that's part of what's made me successful. Again, it goes back to that right and left brain. I'm going to do the analysis. I'm going to get on the weeds on it for a client. I'm going to ask every question they wouldn't even think to ask right and I have to know because it's just how I am it has to make sense it has to be rational now whether that's how I explain it to the client or not you know I'm going to communicate in a way that's comfortable for them but on the back end or the behind the scenes well I've worked every angle of it if I wouldn't do it with my own money I'm not going to tell a client to do it if I wouldn't tell my parents to do it I wouldn't have a client do it. So I've, I've always approached my profession that way. And a lot of advisors say they do that, right? I mean, if they yeah. didn't say that, they wouldn't have any clients, right? I'd put my client first. I'd put my parents' money in it, you know. So I, I don't mean to sound cliche, but that's to the extent I analyze it first. I have to have 100% comfort in it or I am not... <laughs> it's not coming up in conversation, you know, with a client, I have to believe in it. And again, we'd hope that all people in all professions do this. And we know that that's just not the case, even outside of my industry, it's just, it's just human nature, unfortunately. But with that in mind, when I think of my original motivations for becoming a financial advisor, 
it stems back to what we were talking about in these classes I took in the last few years at UCLA with African-American studies and sociology classes and really starting to see, and, and in the conversations with customers at the bar that were more of a blue collar background who got their paycheck and blew it at the bar, you know, and lived paycheck to paycheck. And this idea of saving for retirement and investing, I, they weren't doing that. Some of them were on disability, they were veterans, and I saw them literally spending that disability check at the bar. And, and so just seeing that, you know, because my dad's an engineer, I helped him pay bills when I was 12. I thought it was so cool to write the checks and balance the checkbook. That's how I just thought everybody did it, you know? And then it's seeing these other perspectives saying, oh, that's not how everybody does these things. So, and, and then taking those classes, right? When I put it all together, my career goal when I finished college, very idealistic, I guess, was, okay, I'm going to, you know, I have a Zegon degree. I'm going to get a job at a big company. I'm going to have them pay for me to get my MBA because I thought you had to get an MBA to be in management. I'll become a manager. I'll make a ton of money. Competitive person, right? I don't know what I'm going to do, <laughs> but I'm going to be good at it. I'm going to make a ton of money. And then when I do, I want to go back to the areas of the population that were underserved or there was a gap and give back and teach them about money. Wealthy people have no problem working with financial professionals as to how do I really measure my own success? You know, what I have found has become most important to me is balance. It's the work-life balance. It's the being able to spend time doing the things I want to do. Sure. Maybe if I was working the 60 and 80 hours a week, maybe if I had investment minimums where I'd only work with people that had $250,000 or more. Sure. Absolutely. I'd, I'd make more money. You know, maybe I'd make double what I'm making. Right. But to me, that's not how I'm personally measuring my success. It's that I have time. I can have flexibility. I can go pick my kids up. I can keep them home with me. I can take the day off. I can have those choices and I'm choosing to still help people who need help, who aren't just the millionaire billionaires. I, I have more interest in helping the people with more complex financial situations just because the stage of my career, it's, it's a challenge. And I like challenges, right? I want to go out and build a plan and do the research. You know, I'm really using my brain and all my skill sets, but I'll still help that average person too. You know, I helped someone the other day about paying off their debt they didn't have money to save or invest. It was about helping them get out of debt. My uncle, uh, he likes to say that he says, like, oh, did you sleep the sleep of the innocent? <laughs> ah, very much so every night. Well, some nights I don't sleep much because, you know, I have a baby, but <laughs> it's not because <laughs> of my actions keeping me up at night. That's for sure. If anything, you know, my brain, I have this brain that I, I have to turn it off. Like I can't turn it off sometimes. And if I wake up, I start thinking of my to-do list the next day. Yeah. I think about my clients. I mean, going back to that, what you're saying about approaching your clients and approaching them like family members, I really do. Like I will, I will sometimes wake up and I'm thinking about <laughs> their financial plan and, and what they should do. I mean, that's, I mean, that's probably kind of weird, right? <laughs> it might as well be my own financial plan, right? Like you think yeah. of your own finances, like I'm thinking of theirs. How can we do this? What are the different ways we could achieve it? 
And again, there's never one right answer. So for me, it's like, okay, there's like maybe three different ways we could go about doing this, but which one would be most comfortable for them? And I, I believe that everyone should have access to the same strategies and tools that the most wealthy Americans use, you know, and why not? The way you taught me about the buckets and this financial idea of rational thinking, not emotional thinking, when you're dealing with planning and money, that if you, now, of course, life is emotional, but that you can plan that you have to know how much you're spending. I know maybe it's scary, but if you face the facts, like when you advise us on our finances, you're like, how much do you spend? I'm like, oh my gosh. People don't know. <laughs> they have no idea. There's an embarrassment too. To like, oh, what did I spend money on? Oh, well, I bought that little science kit for the kids. Did they need that this week? Right. Could that have waited till the holidays? Right, yeah. Yeah, it makes you have that kind of internal conversation though. Of like, oh, should I have? Because if you don't even look at it, you don't even have the conversation. You just keep buying it, right? <laughs> yeah, and then you get in a hole. So this rational judgment is something that we can all learn. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... You, you said a few things there that resonated with me and the idea of having a plan and a process, you know, and, and that's, that's really what my job is for people. It's right. It's trying to understand what, what they want to achieve and, and you create this plan, but it's all in the process of how you get there. Right. You know, the more I know about the person, the more I know the plan is going to be perfect for them. Right. So I spend most of my time learning about them. That's the, the most important part of my process. And you create this plan because there's always going to be something we didn't hope would happen, right? The unforeseen, there's going to be risk. There's going to be things out of our control. A pandemic, you know, a lot of people try to have this master plan of life and, and where they see themselves and how they think things are going to go. And the reality is it probably will never go exactly that way. Maybe you'll end in the same spot, but the path and the journey likely won't be how you envisioned it to be. So, I mean, you'd really be surprised. And I have a lot of clients who ask me, well, how am I compared to someone my age? You know, and that's like, <laughs> usually if it's someone who's already taken the step to me with an advisor, they're a little bit more um, engaged in their financial situation to some extent. And generally I'm like, you're better than most, you know, and they're surprised to hear it. But it was that fear on the front end of not even wanting to know it's kind of like health issues where women, you know, my mom's a breast cancer survivor and there's so many women that they just, they don't get their mammogram because they don't want to know. Yeah. I want to know because what if, and it's like, well, you need to get it. So you do know taking that leap of faith and finance has so much to do with your physical health. Right. I mean, think of it. It's such a cause for stress. It's like going to the dentist, it's like going to the doctor, you put it off, you put it off, but the sooner you do it, the better. Again, even if it's just more of knowing where you stand, you have some expenses that are fixed that don't change, right? Like housing payments and car payments and things like that. And then you have the things that are essential that you need, like food, right? Clothing, shelter, right? Those. And then you have those discretionary things. And I'm a big believer in you don't have to deprive yourself or beat yourself up that you spent it on this or that. I think as long as you've made yourself one of those expenses and you know that you're saving money, then it's okay. You know, you have to have that balance, right? Because we don't live forever. Life is short. 
You don't want to forego the memories and the experiences because you don't know what the future holds, right? And it, it also goes right back to finances. There's all these studies on women and finances. And because we tend to spend more time out of the forest, maybe before maternity leave, just statistically, again, I'm not trying to draw stereotypes here, but um, we tend to leave the workforce for that or to care for others. So like if you have an aging parent who needs help, and so we have less time in, therefore less income, therefore often social, lower social security benefits later in life. And it, it is a reality and it affects your financial plan. It's because we balance. Sometimes we have to, sometimes we choose to. And it's hard and it's hard to do. And, you know, women, especially women that work or if you're working mothers for that matter, like you're perhaps you have these feelings of, I'm not all the way in the workforce and I'm not all the way with the kids and what a struggle that is to not be all one or the other and having to find that balance and being okay with it. Again, I have to see it from that side because it's part of what I do. <laughs> True, And it does make you think about maybe I lean in on that balancing. Oh yeah. I mean, that's what I've chosen to do. I'm happy in that. I'm happy with that balance. I'm happy having, again, that flexibility in my career at this stage. It's all about process. Well, thank you, Marie. It's been an amazing discussion. Yeah, I had a great time. It was fun.